0: Hi,
1: Victoria. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. Can't wait for this topic. Nice to
0: see you, too, yeah me too i'm sorry i was adding the topics do, do you like them environmentalism climate change biology i think it's quite fitting hi everyone hi amy hi ba hi
1: vtr hi albert i love the topics i love any topic it's-
0: We will start in around eight minutes. Thank you for coming. And um, yeah, looking forward to have this room with you all. So thank you.
1: Tonight, I I feel like um, Jamie usually expresses that he's feeling so much enthusiasm for this topic. <laughs> I'm so
0: glad to hear that. Yeah, it's it's a very important it's very important work. So, I agree. It's um, I'm really looking forward to this.
1: Well, people um, in general don't consider what's below. You know, anything in the soil. It's even roots. You know, if they're they're underneath, then. It's almost as if they don't exist. You know, like people putting roads on top of, right next to a tree or a driveway, or you know, obviously the clear-cut issue and people not understanding why the word "forest management" is um, not such a great truthful term. Um, so the more the merrier. This uh, bringing microbes and their importance to light.
2: It's interesting when you go to ping somebody that the name that you type
1: in isn't the name. I'm, I'm curious how that is populated with names that aren't anything like the name that has been typed in. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I know. It's so weird. Hey Jamie. I agree. Like, I have sometimes a hard time finding the right
1: people. Yeah, like how do you get Susan from Mohammed?
0: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that is really
1: Good
3: evening, everyone.
0: Good evening, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. How are you today?
3: I am fine, thank you. I was just reading a little bit of the abstract of the paper that we'll have today. Looks interesting. How is uh, everyone here doing?
1: Good, thank you. Good, thank you. I'm just still waiting for the day, Jamie, when you come in and you play an opening, little opening piece with that guitar. <laughs>
3: <laughs> do you know what um, maybe uh, that's maybe an idea to discuss it um, Leah, yeah mm,
1: you're, you're open to it, okay we'll discuss, thank you that's better than no way oh, but,
3: was, was that just like a, a tactical way to do some fishing Victoria to see if I was like will he be receptive, will he give me a nibble <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh I was sincere uh, before the Science Society theme song
3: yeah um that's, yeah. A, that's it's such a toughie to get a theme song isn't it like to, to get the... i'd like to talk to you guys about that later on i'll got some thoughts on that yeah yeah but late but later 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 Have you both had busy days
1: hello Doctor Enright, hi, Dylan.
4: Welcome. Welcome. Uh, welcome, doctor. Hello, hello. Real quick, just a point of clarification. Not Doctor Enright just yet. I'm a PhD candidate. I'm close, but not there yet. So don't worry about the doctor. Bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We're just practicing.
1: Just kidding. Just, there... yeah, just practicing.
4: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank
1: you, Dylan. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, you're getting used to it so hearing it
3: here so <laughs> <laughs> must be exciting then you cuz once it's, you're a
4: doctor you're never not a doctor anymore that is that is one of the perks of of having gone through all this schooling and education so i've got a little bit more time left on my degree but uh, another year or so but uh yeah it's uh it's I can smell the finish line from here.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
4: From what I've heard, you've definitely worked for it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's been it's been a journey and I've got some good research coming out that should come out in the next year or two. So um Ooh. Should be good stuff. Katarina, peg them in
3: for next year as well. Um... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. glad <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm always... we
1: have you.
4: <laughs> always happy to always happy to chat about science and whatnot. Thank you guys for having me on. Uh, this is such a pleasure. My first time using Clubhouse, so pardon me if I don't uh, know all the controls and whatnot right away.
0: Oh yeah. Um, well, you found the way to unmute. That's the most important. And we are <laughs> honored that you know you came to Clubhouse for us. It's a big honor. Thank you. And um, yeah, I can give you a quick overview um on if you're on the phone on the left bottom there's the chat like the room chat where everyone can talk with everyone that's here including the audience uh, so when people want to ask something but they don't want to come up here and actually speak uh, they can comment or ask questions there hi serena meet serena serena Hello. You still
4: Hi, pleasure to meet you. Very exciting Good topic. topic. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening, Serena. Uh, I'm doing this on Club Deck. Oh, um, uh, okay. Where so can yeah, I access that
0: mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, I'm rarely on Club Deck, uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> because I I don't really like the Club Deck um, version. But I see you have a bio. You have two followers, me and Victoria. So, you know, the most important people.
1: (laughs) 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 Thus far, only three followers now. Here they come. Open (laughs) the floodgates. Follow this man. He's not Not a a doctor doctor yet, but you should still follow
4: him. (laughs) Appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Um, <laughs> no, but you know, if you wanna hang out in other rooms and talk, um you know, it's good to have a bio. So you already did that. Hi Ryan, how are you today?
5: Hey Katarina, hey
6: Victoria, how's everyone doing?
0: Hey Ryan. Good. Thank you.
4: Oh, I believe I've just found the the room chat, so we're all set to go. There I I I can see you put a welcome everyone.
0: Exactly. Uh, and there's also a back channel. I'll write "hey" in there, since we follow each other. You should probably see it right away. Um, there should be somewhere a little paper, um, airplane paper thingy, and there is the back channel. But that's not really important. It's just in case you know, um, I cannot hear you or one of reach out and send you a link it's easiest in the in the back channel but it's really not that important okay and... fantastic thank you great shall we start everyone um Yay. yeah okay cool so welcome everyone to science society uh we are very honored to have here dylan and right and let me give you a little bit of um, information about him so, so you get to know him a little bit. Uh, Dylan Enright is a PhD student in microbiology and he joined the Glassman lab in the winter of 2019. He has a Bachelor of Science in biology from CSU San Bernardino and he is mostly interested in studying the microbiome community structure and how changing microbiomes relates to shifts in their surrounding environments he currently studies changes in soil fungal and bacterial abundance and species richness after wildfire using alumina sequencing and um, in twenty twenty he wore wa- he was awarded the NSF GRFP. Um yeah, and um yeah he published this amazing research of his um recently and I think it's really important work. But before we get into that, Dylan, um Victoria usually asks our guest speakers a couple of uh, general questions if that's okay with you and then the stage is yours. Thank
4: you. Thank you for that introduction, Katerina. I appreciate that.
1: Thanks, Katarina, and welcome to Science Society, Dylan. We are so excited to have you here and and hear about your research. So to carry us into the body of your talk, it would be nice to um, hear a bit more about you on a personal level. So my question to you is, can you think in your life of a time that you noticed that you had a certain affinity for science and that could be in your childhood. Um, I hope you can hear me because I just got the red bar. Um, your childhood or maybe it was in a class or a relative, for example. But any time that you noticed in your life and felt like, mm, science, that's something I identify with. That's my quest
4: um yeah that's a great question um i kind of think uh science is a bit of a journey at least it has been in 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 my life Uh, as a kid i was i was always very fascinated by it um taking things apart figuring out how things works i had a chemistry set as a kid um just kind of a, a curiosity for for all that sort of stuff um in high school I started to really notice I had a good head for the concepts of science uh and started to seriously consider becoming some form of a scientist as a as a career option and then the journey from there kind of meandered in college just a little bit I I like many biologists uh thought I might become a doctor like a medical doctor one day uh and then took some classes that uh, were required for the major and whatnot, and there's a moment when you're, for me it was, we were on a field trip up in the mountains, uh, doing some bird watching and looking at some plants for this evolutionary ecology class that I had taken, uh, where you're up, you're breathing the fresh air, and you're hiking amongst the trees, and you're thinking, you know, this is, this is really where, this is why I thought about following science in the first place, is being able to be places like this. And so uh, then I, from there in college, took some classes that really shaped what kind of scientist I wanted to be. Uh, in At uh, Cal State University, San Bernardino, I took some classes with Dr. Paul Orwin, who was the microbiologist there, that ended up becoming what my undergraduate research thesis would end up being in examining some bacteria that could potentially degrade pesticide residues, thinking of like a a green option for cleaning up some contaminated fields and, and croplands and things like that. Um, and that's when I really set on becoming a microbiologist. And then it was about one week in Dr. Sidney Glassman's lab that we went out to the field uh, up in the mountains above Lake Elsinore to collect soil from a burn scar that uh, I, because I had been flirting with the idea of becoming a, a more of a lab scientist. And it was it was about one week into that that I realized, nope, this is still home. Being up in the trees, I, I being in the outdoors, this is great. And while my current research doesn't do a tremendous amount of field work, I still do it from time to time. I'm actually headed out to the field on Wednesday. Uh, and it's become a lot more lab-based. I love that I, in my current passion, in my current field, uh, I have the ability to still go out and, and be outdoors and explore the natural world around.
1: Thank you, I, I'm so excited to listen to you say that. I'm, I'm originally from LA, grew up in California. I've experienced um, you know evacuation from fires, Topanga, for example. I've been to Lake Elsinore. I know exactly where you're talking about. And so it's it's just amazing to hear you say this. I had um, you know you talk about what's your like a best experience in your life, and for me one of mine was similar. So I just have to share it. Um, when I was teaching outdoor school, and there was a place that I was working along the Newport Back Bay, and and I handed uh, the classroom you know the busload of kids all binoculars, and there was a heron that was that was waiting in the water and kids just they all noticed it and they were all standing on this bluff overlooking in the back bay with the breeze blowing and the grasses are moving in the breeze and all the kids were trained on this heron and they were all silent and they were all engaged and I just felt like they've just gotten such a gift from nature in this moment and you know I just felt such a connection and I think um, yeah I think that maybe that's the kind of, that's why I asked this question because I, I wanna know you know, how that happened for you. So thank you. Thank you, Dylan. And, and can you then take us from from that point? Um, You know, you're talking about that you're, you're still able to do some uh, field work, and you're mostly in the lab. And how did we get to the research that you're going to present today? Or how did you?
4: Um, Yeah, thank you for that story. By the way, that was an amazing story. I, I love it when you get to see bright young minds engaging in science. It's just a whole other there's no sensation like it. Um, I, I like to do, I do a lot of mentorship with undergrads in my my current position, um, mostly some because they help me process my own research faster than I could with my own two hands by having a dozen other hands to help. But uh, mostly because I, I just enjoy that, that seeing that exact same sort of feeling, seeing the the students Really catch it that that moment when they're when they're fully engaged and they're thinking about science in that sort of a way. Um, where this research stemmed from, and and I'll talk a little bit more about it in in, in my full talk, but uh, it's it's kind of a a handing off of projects. So my PI here at UC Riverside started this research back in 2013 during her own PhD when she had done some fieldwork collection. uh, So that way she could study the effect of sudden oak death uh, on the soil microbial community in these regions up in the mountains near Big Sur, which is this beautiful redwood and tan oak forest that stretches between the the upper Los Angeles region and the, the bottom of like the San Francisco Bay area. And uh, she had been collecting samples in there for a while and grappling with her own study with it. And then in 2016, this massive wildfire came through and uh, burned more than half of her plots. And so we had this really interesting and unique opportunity to study uh, how this sort of catastrophic fire affected the soil communities with samples taken before and after the fire in the exact same locations, which for wildfire science is virtually unheard of. You can do it with prescribed fires, which are not as intense as wildfires. Uh, But for true wildfires, it's, it's, it's such a rarity because, well, nobody plans where the wildfire is going to burn. And so when I started in the lab in, in uh, 2019, she had these, uh, these sets of these DNA extractions that I worked with to profile this, because again, I, I had mentioned and we had talked in joining the lab about my interest in studying how the soil microbiome changes uh, over time, usually due to I, I'm I'm really interested in disturbance that is anthropogenic or or disturbance that's caused by humans or human-made events, and I, I consider wildfire, though a natural event, when they become these catastrophic wildfires, to be something of a a human-influenced event, given the, the the destructive nature of them and and the reasons that contribute to those kinds of fires happening. So I took on the project from there, and sequenced. And, and looked at the microbes that were present in these extractions and, um, and profiled it from there. Uh, and since then, I've been, and, and this is a little bit of my giving a sneak peek at my, my future directions, but I've been working with other, many other fires. This, this, this paper has been in the works for a couple of years of revisions and trying out a different couple of different things that we could do with it, getting some collaborators on board. Uh, so, this this paper has been in the works, but the research has contributed to a lot of my, my current and ongoing study which involves a lot of other fires and growing these microbes in lab, in pure culture.
1: Do I understand that what you're saying that was so precious about this fire going through there and your research is that the, the soil microbe profile had already been done? And now the fire came through, and now you're you're um, going back in.
4: So um, there's a couple of things that make this particular study area such a, a gem, uh, such a serendipitous opportunity. Uh, and but one of them is yes. So it was it was profiled somewhat. It, um, I didn't end up using the data that was generated from that profiling i worked with the dna extracts directly that were taken from and and frozen and saved uh so that way i could do my own profiling of the community beforehand but just the fact that we even had samples taken before the wildfire happened so we had we had dna to work with from before the fire happened is virtually unheard of most studies that use wildfires all occur after the wildfire has happened, and you have to choose somewhere that's geographically far enough away from the fire that it wasn't affected by the fire, but close enough to where it might approximate what the burned area was like beforehand. But in our case, we had extractions from the exact spots the fire took place in, which really lets us state fairly confidently that, the effects that we are seeing, the changes that we are observing, are due to the fire itself and not some other variable that could happen.
1: Right, thank you, thank you so much for clarifying. Well Mm -hmm. at this point I don't want to keep you um, any longer from presenting your research and Katarina had um, shared with you the chat and the back channel and you can relax and let us take care of um, you know people who would like to ask you questions and that. And so, if you would prefer to do um, to give your talk and then have your Q and A at the end, that's up to you. If you would prefer to have it um, people asking you questions along the way, if that drives your um, your talk in a way that you'd like, then that's also up to you. So you can just let us know, and we're here. And um, please, uh, the mic is yours. Oh,
4: okay. Uh... Well, uh, typically, I, I, I'm used to giving talks uh, and then having the Q&A at the end. So if that's all right with everyone, uh, I'll go ahead and, and do that. And, and, but I'd be more than happy to, after that time stay, to answer whatever questions might, might crop up, of course. Um. Perfect.
1: Okay. That's great. And we have got your link pinned at the top so people can follow.
4: Uh, Fantastic. Um, So uh, I'm going to talk today about my, thank you all for having me first and foremost. Thank you. Uh, This is my first time doing this sort of like audio only version. So I hope that my presentations translate well uh, into this audio only format. Um, uh, Let me know. uh, And after, I'd be happy to clarify anything if it didn't come across or to answer additional questions. Uh, I'm going to be discussing the information and research presented in my recent paper, uh, Megafire in a Redwood Tan Oak Forest Reduces Bacterial and Fungal Richness and Selects for Pyrophyllis Taxa that are Phylogenetically Conserved, published in Molecular Ecology in uh, this year. Um, And I'll I'll go through defining a lot of that stuff in in the title. Um, I do have the visual accompaniment. So if you are following along, using the slides. uh, I will refer when I am changing slides to the next slide. Um, And uh, I use little cartoons of a little mushroom or a smattering of bacteria to try and designate when I am talking about bacteria or fungi. So if you're following along visually with that, um, that helps to delineate. I also state when I'm talking about a certain figure from the paper at any time in there. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start right into it with first really talking about fire, not so much the microbes at, at first, because it's important to set the stage. And so if you're on the, uh, if you're on the slides, I'm on slide two for that. Um, and the first thing I want to define is this term called the fire regime which is something that you see in a lot of papers and a lot of research that's uh, regarding fire. The the fire regime is a term that we have describing the typical, the natural pattern in which a wildfire occurs in a region over time. Um, And so uh, it's important to know how fires normally affect a given ecosystem when we want to study how those fire regimes change to know, you know when it's important to start looking at them again. Um, I'd also like to say a lot of, especially if any of you are, are from California or honestly anywhere on the West Coast, though globally this is becoming more and more of an issue, um, we, we tend to associate wildfire with, with a negative thought pattern of the destruction and the smoke and all of that. And while those things are true, wildfires as they occur naturally in a given ecosystem's fire regime are really important drivers of, of biodiversity. They help to revitalize ecosystems by burning up some of the downed wood and the uh, the dead plant matter and releasing that in, those um, nutrients back into the soil where microbes and animals and other plants can use them as a fuel, uh, as a food source. It, it's such an important driver of ecosystems that it is required Wildfires required in order for the new for those ecosystems to regenerate and to propagate new seedlings in in several ecosystems. Uh, some really well known examples of that are certain pine trees, which require fire to open up their pine cones to disperse their seeds. Uh, otherwise, they they never make new tr- new seedlings. Um, this is a, a process known as serotinous cones and on on my visual aid, I, I do have a picture of, of ser, where it says serotony is a is a picture of serotonous cones. Some other trees um, reproduce by sprouting vegetatively, like from roots and from uh, stumps and whatnot. Uh, and so they after the fire comes and burns them, that signals the the plant to sprout new trees from from its roots and, and from from parts of the the bark. Where things become difficult, and I'm moving to the next slide for this, um, where things become difficult is when these fire regimes are changing. Now historically, in many different ecosystems, not all ecosystems, but many ecosystems, wildfires are high frequency, low severity events, meaning that they happen relatively often, but they are not very severe fires. They're small burns, They're very patchy, they just clear that downed brush and and help to revitalize the ecosystem. But because of globally uh, changing climate, including like rising global temperatures, uh, things like changing rain and weather patterns, and then especially in the United States, uh, this policy of wildfire suppression that has lasted over the last 60, 70 years, uh, for forest management, uh, where we considered all wildfires bad, and so this leads to an accumulation of of downed material and, and and fuel on the ground, and then one of the biggest drivers, in addition to I'd say second only to climate change, would probably be this development along the wildland urban interface, which is the borderland of these wild areas like forests and, and other wildlands, and where humans are building their cities, their towns, their freeways. Um, this ends up contributing tremendously to the rise in wildfires as things like sparks from electrical fires, uh, some from from building fires, some from vehicle fires. Accidents can get into areas that haven't burned in a long time and really spark enormous blazes. Uh, moving on to the next slide, there's I present a little, I have a graph about from CAL FIRE, so this is California specific. I'm I'm here at UC Riverside, which is in California. Um, looking at the trends and how much acreage and also the number of fires that are occurring has really, really changed uh, in the past couple of decades, but we've been really feeling it recently uh, during these long, prolonged heat and 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 drought events, um, in the the five year average for wildfires tends to be around seven hundred seven hundred fifty thousand uh, acres that burns. Uh, it's about seven about six and a half thousand fires themselves. But in twenty twenty alone, just the year twenty twenty. Over 3 million acres burned, about 3.8 million acres burned in California. There were over 8,000 fires. And so not only are more fires cropping up, they're getting bigger and more severe. And it's led to this phenomenon that we've coined in fire science called the mega fire, where these are fires that are atypically, according to their natural fire regime, atypically severe large and destructive, both in terms of ecological destruction and destruction like uh, to human society, to, to life and to property. Uh, and I have some pictures uh, the, in the visual, if you're looking at it, uh, in the top right corner that is showing a picture of the Bobcat Fire, which was a, a mega fire that burned in the hills above Pasadena and burned a, a large stretch of the San Gregorio Mountain, Mountains right there and then uh, below that is a picture of the campfire which was the the deadliest fire in US history which completely burned down the town of paradise california um, so understanding how these wildfires how these changes are going are are how these changing fire regimes are going to affect the ecosystem is something of an imperative for us because this is not what our ecosystem is ready for this is not what they're what they've adapted to over millennia this is this is something that they have not been challenged with at least at this severity yet and so it's really critical that we understand how the fires affect the environment, both so we know how the environment might change and also how we might help the environment on the back end of these fires. Now that I've talked about fires for a bit, I'd like to kind of shift gears just a little bit and talk about microbes, because this is where, where my research is and this is where, where my interest lies. Um, so I'm I'm on slide five now if you're you're following along with the, the visual. Because um, I, it's important to to know why we care about fire and microbes. Like obviously, we know we should, or I won't say obviously. Now we know why we should talk about fire. the The stage is set for that. But why the microbes? What what most people don't realize, um, unless you're in these kind of microbial soil sciences, is that microbes are extremely important drivers of ecosystem processes, um, particularly in terms of decomposition and biogeochemical cycling. And what I mean by biogeochemical cycling is the ability for carbon that is locked up in, say, trees uh, or plants, uh, along with nitrogen in the soil and calcium in the soil and, and phosphorus in the soil and these other chemical components that are required for life In order for these to move through the environment, microbes do a lot of the heavy lifting in that. They're really important for cycling this through the environment. Um, And breaking down the dead leaves, the dead sticks, the dead branches, the trees, dead plants, that's all microbe or vast majority of is microbially driven. Um, And fire coming through and burning these environments can radically change the availability of these nutrients. Uh, Fire changes the carbon that's present in the environment from something that microbes can easily digest and and pass through the environment as part of their cycle into these recalcitrant and difficult to break down charcoal and and pyrolyzed forms. Um, And in addition to that, fire the fire, being as hot and destructive as it is, kills a great deal of the microbes living in the soil where the wildfires take place if the fire is severe enough. And what microbes are there or no longer there after the wildfire moves through has major impacts and implications for the ability for plants to reestablish in the environment and for the ecosystem to eventually recover. And a part of this is because microbes are these key partners for symbiotic plant relationships. Most plants on the planet have some sort of required fungal symbiosis, some sort of required fungal partner in order for them to survive in the environment. uh, in addition to that, many plants require the aid of a number of bacteria in order to fix and and create the compounds that they need in order to survive. I have a little picture in the visual aid of a couple of mushrooms in the bottom right corner. These are Amanita musicaria, um, which tends to be uh, the most famous mushroom that people have seen before the the fly cap Amanita, but the those. Fungi, those mushrooms, are uh, what are known as ectomycorrhizal. Uh, They are a type of fungi that associates with the roots of trees and help to exchange nutrients in the environment to the tree. Without these kinds of fungi, the tree wouldn't survive or would survive very poorly. So hopefully now everybody here cares about microbes as well in addition to fire. And so moving to the next slide, I would talk about, I'd like to talk about um, what do we currently know about the effect of fire on microbial communities? It's been pretty well demonstrated, at least in the current literature about this, that fire reduces species richness and community diversity. And what I mean by that, by species richness, is the number of Species present in the environment, so it reduces how many things are there, and then it's also reducing how diverse that community is, which can be very problematic. Um, a, a lot of ecosystems thrive by having rich microbial populations that are with very diverse, so that way they can do a wide variety of ecosystem functions. Uh, microbes. Uh, fire can also shift microbial composition in its reduction it can change from what is what we we would consider a typical soil community to something that is complete doesn't look anything like what the community looked before, and this can impact severely environmental restoration, especially if some certain microbial functional groups are lost like those symbiotic partners that I mentioned or microbes that are capable of moving carbon and other nutrients through the environment. If those are lost, it can severely impact the ability of the environment to recover. And as these fires become more severe, we're noticing that fire uh, can change microbial communities so severely that it can take 13 years or more to return to what it looked, they looked like before the fire happened. If they ever do, one study tracked the recovery of the microbial community from fire in this uh, this scrubland in Spain, and in their twenty-year sampling period, it never went back to the same. Now, in addition to all of the damage and the, the dramatic change that fire can have on microbial communities, we've seen evidence that there are some species of microbes that are capable of being adapted to fire, that they thrive after the fire moves through, either by germinating rapidly when after the heat from the fire or they're eating unique compounds, or, or some such things. Um, and there's evidence for these fire-loving microbes or pyrophilis, which is a, a word which means fire-loving, um, particularly in fungi as early as 1909, when Dr. Fred Seaver uh, was looking at what species of fungi he could get to grow on burned soil after a wildfire had had affected his his nearby area. Um, and I in the visual aid, I, I have a little picture of one of those black and white photographs of the soil plates that he was growing. Uh, moving to the next slide, but there's a lot we don't know when it comes to these pyrophyllis microbes. For one, almost all the studies that have been done on pyrophyllis microbes happen in pine forest systems. But wildfires don't just happen in pine forest systems. They happen globally. They happen in in, in a wide variety of systems. And so how do we know that the effects that we're observing are because, how do we know that the effects we're observing will hold true for other ecosystems if we're not sampling in those other ecosystems, if we're not studying them? In reference to fire, and then as far as bacteria goes, there's been almost no work done on it. There's maybe three or four papers total on fire-adapted bacteria. Um, another major gap in the uh, in the literature in our understanding of pyrophilous microbes is that for the last hundred years or so, the vast majority of the studies that even were done looked exclusively on mushrooms, looked exclusively for for mushrooms and other fruiting bodies of fungi, which means they're going to completely miss things like bacteria, which you can't see just walking around the forest, along with single-celled fungi like yeasts, which even though they're small, even though you can't see them with the naked eye, doesn't mean that they're not doing tremendously important ecosystem functions, and then uh, another major gap in our current understanding of the of of microbes and fire is that all of our research thus far has been observational we see these species after fire we see how much they reduce, but we don't understand what those same species that we see over and over and over again are doing in the environment. We, we don't understand what role they are playing in the ecosystem, uh, which is a pretty major gap. And all of this is leading in to my research, uh, moving to slide eight, um, on the soberanus megafire of 2016. So next slide shows uh, one of the figures in my paper, which I'll talk about right now. Um, we had this really unique and serendipitous opportunity to look at the effects of fire on soil microbes in the, this redwood tan oak forest where the Soberanas fire took place. So as I mentioned. I,
3: oh, oh, sorry. yeah. Oh. You, we went totally silent for a few seconds there. Oh,
4: I'm sorry. Uh, Can you guys hear me still?
3: Yeah. You're back. Yeah. I, I, I heard up until you said the fire of 2016.
4: That was when I lost you for a few seconds. So, so oh. sorry about that.
0: No, no. I I, no I can hear you fine. I think, Jamie, it must be oh, on your uh,
4: side. I'm, I'm sorry. Then. I'm very sorry for interrupting.
3: Oh, don't Please
4: worry. Oh, yeah, no, thanks. no worries. Please let me know if I can't be heard. I, I definitely want to make sure. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um You sound
2: great, Dylan. <laughs> thank
4: you. Um, so in talking about the, the Sober Honest Fire of 2016 and my work, we had this really unique and serendipitous opportunity. So um I'm showing here on the right-hand side in my in the visual aid. Uh, Or if you're following along in the paper, this is figure one in my paper. So uh, what we show in this orange line in figure one is the perimeter of where the fire took place. And then the triangles uh, show the locations of where our plots are. So it looks like a big space, but these are actually fairly close together when we're talking about like geographic terms. and uh, as a little bit of a, a, a aid for those of you who might not be as familiar with California geography, um, to the north of where this figure is showing is the San Francisco Bay area. And then a little ways to the south is the Los Angeles greater area. So uh, what had happened was, as I mentioned earlier, but before starting the talk, is that my, my PI, Dr. Sidney Glassman, was sampling in this forest in, back in 2013 to examine the effect of sudden oak death on the soil microbial communities there, uh, which is this disease, this blight that moves through trees and, and kills the oaks um, very rapidly. Uh, so we, we, she was studying that effect in this area uh, and had taken soil samples and then had, we she had extracted the DNA from that soil and frozen the DNA so that way it can be studied later, though she did her own analysis of it at the time. But then in 2016, a large region of this forest burned down in the Soberanus megafire, um, which gave us this really unique opportunity to take go back, take samples from areas that we had previously sampled in, and extract new DNA and see where how the microbes were cha- how the community changed before and after the fire. In addition, because it didn't burn down every plot that she had, only just about half of them, we even were able to get samples from a control plot, which never burned, so that way we could try and figure out if the effects we were seeing were due to time or a difference of season or or some of that sort of things, which there was a seasonal difference. Um, the original sampling took place in January of 2013, uh, and then the post-fire sampling took place in October of 2016. So that's there is a seasonal difference, so we wanted to make sure that that wasn't affecting the soil microbial community. Dylan, way. I
2: am so sorry to interrupt you. I got cut out. Can you please describe how, where you sampled, like underneath? Was it you know the understory? And just very briefly, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I got cut out, and I love this stuff. So just describe <laughs> that one more time.
4: Yeah, uh, no, no problem. So this was this was yeah. We're looking at the top ten centimeters of soil uh, when we took these cores. Uh, that's where. The vast majority of bacterial and fungal life takes place, and it is in the the soil in the understory of this redwood and tan oak forest here in the Big Sur mountains, right there. Um, and, and how uh,
2: many cores did you take? I'm just curious. I'm I lo- yeah, just just describe yeah. that. I'm curious.
4: No problem. No problem. Uh, we took four. So we have. Um, three plots that we were able to get post-fire samples of. Uh, it was very difficult to get into this zone after the fire, um, and uh, it was which made, limited our choices in, in how many we could get. Um, and so uh, we were able to take 12 cores per sample and, and three plots, so um, it ends up being a total of, of 72 cores that we were able to get. Uh, total, uh, cl- including pre and post fire together. So. And
2: there were no plants growing after the fire in which you collected the cores, like there was no understory sort of, you know, forbs or grasses.
4: Right. So uh, we were able to get in less than two weeks after the fire was declared over. This was f- immediate, like... CAL FIRE had just released the zone to research only sort of specifications. Uh, we had like, this is the sort of thing where you have to get like permission from the forest service in order to be able to enter. Um, so nothing's growing. This is this is charred landscape for the most part after the fire. Now in this little blue triangle that I have in figure one, uh, down in the, the bottom right sort of area of figure one, Where it says 58 above it that was an unburned plot so that had actively growing forest all around it both before and after the fire was never hit by the fire
2: i'm so sorry i see this now thank you dylan yeah
4: no problem at all no problem i'm happy to explain so uh, i'm going to move on to the next slide if you're following along with the visualization uh, and talk a little bit more about why this fire is so important and interesting to study so this fire was very large by the standards of many fires. Um, this, this fire burned over 500 square kilometers. Um, this, is, this is hundreds of thousands of acres, this fire burned. Uh, and it was high severity through a good portion of it. So it burned very intensely in a lot of the area, including in the, burn, in the plots that we sampled that had been burned. They were both in the high severity zones. Um, what also makes the inter- the, this particular study interesting is that we were able to get in Im- relatively immediately post-fire, which means that there hadn't been rain, there were no major weather events like wind storms or whatnot that had gone through, which means that there's no significant chance for other microbes to disperse into the burn zone. So we're really getting a good snapshot of just what is there after the fire is over. And then a previous sampling in these plots by my, by my PI means that we are able to obtain data before and after the fire from the exact same plots, which is virtually unheard of in wildfire science in prescribed fire science. You can get it because you set the fire in prescribed fire science. So you can sample before they take it. The prescribed fire happens and you go and you sample after, but prescribed fires aren't nearly as intense as wildfires are. Especially something as catastrophically intense as the Soberanus megafire was. And so, being able to have before and after samplings from the exact same plots is golden by itself. But then, on top of it, we have a true control plot so we can rule out other effects of time and season and all those other confounding factors that might be contributing to change. And then, on top of all of that, This is a redwood and tan oak forest, not a pine forest. And as I mentioned previously, the vast majority of research into pyrophilous microbes has been done in pine forest. The vast majority of wildfire science is done in pine forest. So looking at an ecosystem that's not pine forest allows us to see, can we see the same effects? Can we see similar effects? If we do, that might mean that some of those species that respond positively to fire might be true wildfire generalists. They're adapted to wildfires and it doesn't seem to really matter the ecosystem. Or are those species that have been talked about for a hundred years, are they just pine forest species? And in which case are they as ecologically important as something that would be a true generalist? And so, what we hope to address—I'm on slide 11 at this point. What we were really hoping—the questions we were really hoping to address with this study—is how did the Soberanus megafire affect the microbial species richness and community composition? So, how many species are there, and how did the community? What was the community looking like? Like, who was most? Who was dominating the community? How diverse was it? Um, what? taxa were positively affected by the fire? Could we find some of those described post-fire pyrophilous fungi or or species that might have a positive association with fire? And then how does what we observe in the Soberanus fire compare to what has been seen in pine forest systems, which will help us to really tackle this idea of some of these species potentially being generalists of fire. Um, brief overview of what we did. I, I'm not going to drill down too heavily into the specific methods here. If you have questions about it, I'm happy to answer questions about the methods. Um, but as I mentioned before, pre-fire sampling took place in January of 2013. We took 12 cores per plot. Post-fire sampling took place in October of 2016. We sampled the top 10 centimeters of soil, extracted the DNA from that soil that we gathered, and then I. We used polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, uh, to rapidly amplify the 16S region for bacteria, which is what we typically use to as a marker for, for figuring out what species the bacteria might be, and ITS1, which is another molecular marker for giving a, a, a certain fungus a name in fungi. And then we pooled those. Amplified DNA regions into an Illumina MySeq library where we did 250 base paired end sequencing, which just means that we were able to get regions uh, rapidly sequenced for the whole community uh, using these markers. And I'd be happy to talk about more if, if people are specifically interested in techniques like that. Um, for pretty much the rest of my talk moving forward, I'm going to drill down into some of the figures, the, the, the main figures following, and kind of explaining the results that we observed and, and what the takeaway message from each of those figures really was. Um, so, if you're following along in the slides, this is slide 13 now. Uh, if you're following along in the paper, I'm going to be talking about figure two. And specifically, we're going to look at figure two panels B and D, um, which are looking at the effect on the species richness. Um, so this is how much species, how how many bacteria or fungi are present in the soil, um, and looking at the reduction that took place post-fire. So the first set of points. On either panel B or panel D in uh, or the left and the right in the visual um, are the unburned community. That's plot 58 and we're using red here to show post-fire and blue to show pre-fire. And what you can see in both the bacteria and the fungi in the plot 58 zone is that there's very little change in plot 58 it completely overlaps in the richness. There's no sig- statistically significant difference, showing that even though it was three years later, even though there was a difference in season, in terms of richness, at least, the unburned control plot hadn't changed, which again leads us to believe that if we are seeing change, it should be due to fire. And what we find is that fire did indeed lead to quite a big change. Um, the blue points up near the top of both bacteria and fungi fungal panels are showing the community before the fire and then the red triangles are showing the community after the fire and what we found is that there was between a 40 percent and 70 percent reduction in richness uh after the fire so it, a humongous chunk of the community is just kind of gone um, was severely was severely reduced Um, Moving on to slide 14, or if you're following in the paper, this is figure 3, and I'm specifically going to look at panels C through F. Uh, We're looking at the community composition of both bacteria and the fungi. Uh, And what I have in these panels is an NMDS, which is a visualization of community composition. And the way that this is interpreted is each individual dot or triangle on these figures is showing one of the samples within the community and the closer the points are together the more similar they are and the further apart they these points are away from each other the more different those samples are from each other and then uh, i have these ellipses drawn around the communities which sh- help to show like the whole post fire community or the whole pre fire community in either blue or red in this instance. Um, and what we see for both panel C and E, this is the unburned bacteria and the unburned fungi, is that there's virtually no change. In There is a very small amount of change in the bacterial community, but there's no statistically significant change in the unburned fungi at all, but just a little one in the bacteria. So they these, these ellipses almost completely overlap, showing that, again, even after three years, even with a difference in, in winter to fall, kind of spring uh, season like this, the community was fairly stable. But then we look at the burned communities. And so panel D for the burned bacteria is showing that these ovals, are wildly different from each other. These communities are wildly different from each other. The the, the burned communities spread out very far. They, they tend to, even the samples can be kind of different from each other, while the unburned stayed pretty clustered together. And uh, I've layered over this another type of a test known as an NFIT test, which is showing us which species are, in this case it's phyla, uh, which phyla, or um, in the fungi it'll be genera, but which, which groups of bacteria or fungi are really driving this change? And so for bacteria, the groups that are really driving the change, which really are, are characterizing the post-fire community, are the phyla firmicutes, or firmicutes, as some people uh, pronounce it, and actinobacteria. Um, For the fungi, it's primarily driven by this genus Basidioascus, which I will talk about that genus a little bit more uh, a little later, and the genus Penicillium, which Penicillium most of us think of for producing penicillin or as your common bread mold. But there are a number of species of Penicillium that have been described as post-fire adapted, uh, dating all the way back to 1910. In Fred Seaver's work. So uh, what we're seeing basically is that in addition to the richness being dramatically reduced, the community composition is really dramatically shifting as well as changing. So the fire is having an enormous effect on the microbial community present that we can ascribe pretty much to the effect of fire and not so much to the effect of time or seasonal difference uh moving on to slide 15 or if you're in the paper this is uh figure 4 i'm talking about the left hand panels of figure 4 right here i'm going to talk about how fire affected the most abundant bacteria present within the system and uh what we find is that before the fire there's very common bacteria that you find anytime you sample soil a lot of proteobacteria when you sample soil but after the fire, we have a landscape that is pretty much dominated by Firmicutes or Firmicutes and Actinobacteria, much like the last analysis showed. Um, and a lot of these species, a lot of these genera that are shown to be dominating the most abundant uh, samples post-fire, the 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 most abundant uh, taxa post-fire, they are. Um, things that form hardy, resistant, sometimes heat-tolerant spores, things that are really difficult to kill, or things that have really interesting metabolic pathways that might be capable of breaking down some of the very unique forms of nutrients that are present in the burned environment. Um, Slide 16, we're going to now start looking at the fungi. And and I'm showing some pictures in the visual aid uh, just because It's easier to show pictures of of mushrooms than it is to show pictures of bacteria. Um, (laughs) uh, Right now, I'm talking about, in the paper, this is figure four, the top right panel. And we're looking at what the community looked like before the fire took place. And what we're finding is that many of the fungi present in the sequences before the fire took place are the same kinds of fungi that you find if you go out and hike in a redwood forest or a redwood tan oak forest and look for mushrooms. You find hygrosope, you find Inosopae, Xeromphalena, you, you find, th- these are really common ones. Mortierella, which is one of the biggest um, ones in the pre-fire sequences, you're not gonna find because it's a, a microscopic fungus, but it's pretty common anytime you do any sort of sequencing of soil. Um, for fungi. So these are what we would expect to find in this forest before the fire takes place. After the fire though, and so this is slide 17, we're looking at the bottom left panel of figure 4, we found a dramatic change. One, before the fire, the top genus took up about 13% of of the sequences. But after the fire, the top genus takes up a whopping 28 percent, almost a third, of all the sequences post-fire. So it just dominates the what we're finding in the post-fire environment. Um, the uh, many of the species that we're seeing there are what are previously described as pyrophilous fungi: the Pyrenema, Trichorina, Anthracobia, Scutellinia, Pyzeza. Um, penicillium, these are fungi that have had descriptions already given to them of being potentially adapted to fire. So we're able to corroborate the kinds of things people observe in pine forests, uh, which is a, a, a big deal considering that not a lot of work happens outside of pine forest. But one thing that's very different is that Basidioascus, which dominated almost a third Of all of the sequences we were able to obtain post-fire. And that's because that that is a species, a a genus that has not been described as as pyrophilus, as a post-fire fungus. And that's because you wouldn't find it looking for mushrooms. It's a yeast. This is a microscopic yeast that you would never find if you were just walking through the forest doing this. But And not only is it a yeast, it's a recently discovered yeast, and that this yeast was recently discovered when examining uh, soil samples that had either been heated in a lab or came from some blueberry fields that caught fire. So we have this really interesting yeast that might be adapted to fire that has been basically undetected in all of these mushroom-based surveys of post-fire fungi. So we saw how fire affected richness, we saw how fire was changing the community, and then we looked at how fire was changing which species were dominating the community. What we wanted to know is, can we start to maybe predict what types of bacteria or fungi will respond positively to the fire. And so now on slide 18, or um, uh, this would be figure five in the paper, uh, we did some, some statistical analysis looking at how close, how if you were to place all of these onto a tree, a phylogenetic tree, which measures how closely related organisms are, do closely related organisms respond to fire in relatively the same way? And what we found, uh, this was done in in collaboration with our our collaborator, Dr. Kazuo Isobi, who was at the University of Japan, is now at the Peking University in in Beijing. Um, What we found is that we get a large clustering, for bacteria at least, of positive responders in that whole phyla, the the firmicutes. We also get strong signals of positive response to fire in the actinobacteria, which were the groups that both responded positively were shown to be driving some of the change in one of our analyses, and also were shown to dominate the most most abundant, the, the top dominating species in in our sequence abundance assay uh, 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 analysis. And then moving to slide 19, or figure six in the paper, uh, we looked at the same thing in fungi, and we found that three groups really responded positively to fire. Uh, that would be the Pisazomycetes, so we're looking at class level, not, not phylum level organization here. But in the Pisazomycetes, we had a really strong signal of, of um, positive response of fire. This is where pyranema, scutalinia, trichorina, pyzasa, those things that we observed as being the most dominant fungi in our samples post-fire, that's where they typically cluster. The next uh, group that that responded really positively was the Euroshiomycetes. This is where penicillium lives. This is, this is where penicillium is at. So things that are closely related to penicillium might respond positively to fire in a similar fashion. The third group that responded positively was the Gemini basidiomycetes. And this is where that Basidioascus that took up a whopping one third of our sequences and was showed to be driving some of these changes in the post-fire burned community exists. It's in the Gemini basidiomycetes. So these groups all make sense and they're corroborating what we're seeing in our other analysis. What might be a subtle distinction here but is really important is that this might mean that if you go and you sample a fire, you might not find the exact species that I found in my study or that someone else found in their study. But if they're closely related to one of the species in my study or another study that responds positively to fire, you might be able to predict that they also will respond positively to fire in that sa- in a similar fashion. And this idea of trying to predict what species, how species will react to fire, leads back to an idea of trying to figure out how these species might be adapted to fire in the first place. Um, And so looking at all the positive responders, looking at things that we find in the literature and other studies that are positive responders, we started to think very critically about how some of these microbes might be adapted to fire. And we fitted this around, there's a a famous ecologist by the name of Grimes who built this triangle that says that, that living creatures trade off between being competitive or stress-tolerant or ruderal, which is an, another word for fast-growing. And he based his ecological theory around plants, but we took that same idea and tried to adapt it to pyrophilus microbes. And that's what figure seven of my paper, or slide 20 is showing uh, in the visual aid, is showing is is this figure where we're looking at what some of the traits, what are some of the characteristics we would expect of a Stress tolerant or thermotolerant microbe. What would what kind of characteristics would we expect to find that are shared in common amongst uh, things that are maybe adapted to utilizing the unique resources found post fire? Or what kind of species do we expect to be just fast growing and capitalizing on all this free real estate that the fire has opened up by burning away their competitors? um and we started to hypothesize about what species what gen what genera might fit into some of these groups based off of our work some other work in our lab some other studies both of regarding fire but then also just studies regarding the function of some of these organisms whether they eat something very interesting or unique or whether they've been shown to survive in, a, say, a laboratory heating experiment, things like that. Um, so we we're, we're started to propose this framework of how microbes might be adapted to fire. And that's where my current research has been taking me. Um, if, if you're following in the visual aid, this is now slide 21. Uh, as a lab, we're studying fires in more non-pine ecosystems, uh, We do a lot of work in chaparral systems, which is like a scrubland kind of system. We do work in grasslands, things like uh, non-pine forest ecosystems. And then I personally have been uh, working on exploring the ecology of some of these pyrophilous fungi and bacteria to try and understand what they're doing in a post-fire environment. And I've been doing this by collecting soil from the environment bringing it back to the lab and growing some of these bacteria from the or fungi from the soil in petri dishes in the lab. So that way I can test them with various experiments to try and see what kind of life strategies they might be employing, what kind of traits they have. Uh, in the visual aid, visual aid, I do have a picture of just a an assortment of some of the cultures that I've grown, both of bacteria and fungi. This was a, a picture taken by one of my undergrads, um, Jenna Maddox, who who came and, and did work with us uh, for a summer uh, internship, uh, just highlighting the incredible diversity in how these microbes grow and look, and the the phenotypes, the the characteristics we see of these microbes growing on the plate, just the rainbow of colors and different growth styles that we observe. And that's where my current research is really focused. is is a lot of now applying these microbes in an experimental sense to try and uncover the way in which they function in the environment. And With that, I'm going to go ahead and open up discussion for questions. I'd like to say thank you to, to all of you at NYU Science Society. Um, I'd say thank you to my Glassman Lab members. Um, if you look at slide 22, there's a bunch of photos of, of all of them. <laughs> uh, and to my collaborators that are present on this paper, and then the financial contributors that have contributed to my research along the way. So thank you, everybody for your time. And I would love to answer any questions you might have.
0: Thank you so much Dylan, for this wonderful presentation. Uh may I think you're such a great uh, presenter uh, It was really, um, very interesting and easy to follow along. Really appreciate that, and yeah, please flash your mics and go ahead and ask questions.
1: Then we can call on you in the order that we see your mics flashing. Thank you. All right, I saw Denise and Lisa or Lisa. So let's um, let's go Lisa or Lisa, excuse me, you can direct first and then Denise. Thank you. Hi,
2: Dylan. Unfortunately, um, I'm going to be hard on him because we're in the, the same field, but he's way more of a specialist. Um, I, Dylan, I want just for everyone, because I'm just kind of a jerk about these things, because I study plant soil feedbacks, microbial stuff. Can sure. you explain to everyone um, what the differences or what the potential issues could be with the 16 are um, in a sort of sequencing in terms of what it measures and in terms of measuring abundance and diversity and how the fire temperature how this could adjust certain things like what Dylan is doing is absolutely amazing he's got all these different um, sort of variables going on where you can see this very unique situation and it's really Curious about when we measure diversity and abundance of the microbes in the soil, how the techniques sort of um, have a propensity to really demonstrate certain things. And I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh on Dylan. We're, um, but I'm just, I want him to explain to all of us how these molecular techniques and potential sampling could lead us to to feeling a certain way. If you don't mind explaining some of these things, Dylan. Uh,
4: of course not. That that's that's a very valid point. Um... Yeah, so, so all techniques have their flaws. Um, they're, they're, we, have, we don't have a perfect technique, especially for measuring things that we can't see, like microscopic organisms, uh, especially in the soil and stuff like that. Um, 16S does not capture everything. Um, it captures, it's, it's pretty good for most bacteria and the specific region that we are utilizing, the, hypervar- the V4 hypervariable region is pretty good at um, pinning down the identity of a species. That being said, uh, a marker like this is only as good as a database. And so if our databases are incomplete, if if our databases might have a wrong identity, we'll never know that until after the fact. So there, there are some caveats, some things that can take place like that. Um, the same thing goes for ITS2, which is a, a fungi, a fungal marker. Um, they ITS2 doesn't capture every fungus. Uh, it does uh, miss some groups a little bit more than others. Um, while that's true, we were trying to limit our study to the types of groups that, that would matter ecologically for this sort of thing. Um, So so we're not as interested in some of the specialty groups that might be missing from the ITS2 region. Um, It does cover quite a a large uh, swath. It does have trouble identifying a specific species from another. Um, There are some groups of fungi that just do not resolve well with ITS at all. Um, and But we can usually tell them to at least their genus, if we can't tell them to their individual species. And that's why you'll notice in my paper, there are a number of analyses that I did, which focus on the genus level identification, rather than the species level identification, because there are, there are some limitations in what these molecular things can do. In terms of of amplicon sequencing, doing this sort of thing. Uh, there there are other caveats to keep in mind. Um, there are some people who argue that when catastrophic events happen, that there is DNA left over from dead organisms, and so some of the effects that you might be seeing, some of the things you might be sequencing might not a- actually be there in the environment anymore. They might be dead. But in our case, specifically with wildfire, rather than some other catastrophes, uh, there is quite a bit of evidence to dis- to uh, support the idea that the fire is, se- if, especially if the fire is severe enough, um, as it was in our case, that the fire is capable of scrubbing out a lot of that, uh, what's known as relic DNA from the environment. And so we feel pretty confident that what we're observing are things that are actually there in the environment. Um, there could be some things that are missed through molecular methods, but this is given current technology and current understanding a pretty good snapshot of what's going on. Did that, did that answer your question? Uh, I don't know if there were other parts to it you wanted me to discuss
2: that was great um dr dylan no uh, certainly the things that aren't there in uh, are probably not fire adapted right Um, right right
4: um
2: yeah and you're so basically what you're saying though is like this stuff covers these different sort of you know forms of sequencing they they really um highlight generalists and sort of common groups and they might have a chance of excluding those rare outside groups, but they give a great snapshot of the dominant groups that would be there, right? Is that, do I understand that correctly?
4: So so yes, that, that is one thing, is sometimes these analysis can miss very rare groups. Now, that being said, there are people who care about, it's called the rare earth microbiome, that look for very low abundance microbes. Um, that being said, it all depends, <laughs> a, a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Marcos Spisachovic, Uh, says this pretty often, and and I find myself parroting him. Uh, It all depends on what your question is, is what he would say. And in this case, I would say that's also true. If we're interested in the overall ecosystem ecology of these microorganisms, the things that are going to be there in greater proportion are the things that are probably doing most of the heavy lifting ecosystem-wise. The rarer and extremely low abundance microorganisms while they are probably doing something that's important for the environment in their own way, aren't probably contributing to as great of an overall ecosystem function um, as, as, as some of the, the more major groups. Now, in terms of the database, the, the databases aren't preferential to common things. I mean, yeah, you're gonna if it's common, you're gonna have it in the database. And so you might miss some rare things in a database. But these databases are composed of pretty much everybody who does sequencing. So it it doesn't matter whether you're studying marine microorganisms or fire or forest or grassland or if you care about the rare things if you sequence it and you identify it and it gets it'll be deposited in the database so there's not as much of a bias though of course if something's rare it might be undiscovered and then there'd be no way of it being in the in the uh, in the database at that time
7: so so quick follow-up to Lisa's question Um, Would you have spotted cyanobacteria using the primers that you used?
2: Absolutely.
4: No, no, no. 16S V4 region can absolutely find cyanobacteria. Okay. Absolutely. Now, it's not so good for some groups of cyanobacteria, but you can can detect cyanobacteria with 16S V4 region. Um, People, not me because I'm not a marine microbiologist, but people who do that sort of work, I've read a number of papers where you use the V4 region of the 16S or the V5 region of 16S that are capable of identifying cyanobacteria. That being said, in a terrestrial soil forest environment like this, cyanobacteria are probably not playing a major role because they, they have a higher water requirement than a lot of other bacteria do.
7: So uh, they, they do act, well, be careful with that because it's been shown that uh, like in, in the Gobi Desert, uh, there can be cyanobacteria that, that are important.
4: True, true. I suppose I, sh- I shouldn't be so quick to be heavy handed. Cyanobacteria do it in, uh, associate in like biological soil crusts, which are found in, in the desert. Um, they associate sometimes with lichen. Uh, as well, which again are are desert and, and these sor- sorts of things do exist in in pretty much all ecosystems. But it wasn't one of the major groups when when you think about a a, a system like like a a heavily old growth forest. Um, we, we don't typically think about those kind of groups. So, so you didn't spot any at all? No, I, I not not anything that registered as being indicative in any of the um. Of, of any of the major groups that were taking place, or any of the uh, like I did indicator species analysis and didn't really find cyanobacteria there. Um,
2: so. I have one more <laughs> question to ask, and I'll stop. I'm, I feel like because Dylan and I are, he's you know far more advanced than I am with these things, but I'm just kind of harassing him here. Can you d- describe what the genome size difference is and how the size? Might impact how these the sequencing would uh go down, and you know what is you think the variability in the genome size within bacteria and within fungi, and how that might sort of highlight um, how these markers might attract to them and and such, if that made any sense?
4: yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, so um yes, there can be fairly large differences in bacterial genome sizes um, from some bacteria that are maybe only a couple of kilobases to, I think the largest bacterium, uh, if I remember correctly, was on the order of six or s- couple of se- several, several megabases. It's been a while since I took genomics. <laughs> there's no
2: polyploidy <laughs> oh. right in this. Like there's no, like, no, okay. Right. Yeah. Not in, yeah.
4: not in bacteria. Bacteria pretty much exist with a core genome and then mm-hmm they'll have uh, at sometimes plasmids, uh, plasmids uh, and the core genome is typically a single chromosome. There are a scant few bacteria out there that have two chromosomes, right. um, though right. that's a debated topic that some people are saying, well, what's a chromosome but a really big plasmid? So anyhow, um, there, there is some of that in there. Uh, and in all molecular work, Smaller things amplify preferentially because it's just the the basis. It's in the nature of PCR. Anything that's amplicon based, if it is smaller, you will get more amplicons of it because it takes less time, less resources for it to amplify in the reaction. Thank, that being sorry, said, sorry, I didn't
1: mean to cut you off. Sorry.
4: Oh, that's all right. Uh, that being said, um, there's a little bit of of, we didn't do whole genome sequencing, so even if the genomes are wildly different sizes, um, it's not as effective on this uh, study as as someone who say would have done like metagenomics of the soil or whole, whole genome sequencing, because then you will really, real, you really will have small genomes being preferred over large genomes. In this case, we're using a marker. That is pretty omnipresent in bacteria and, or pretty omnipresent in in fungi. And I have to say, pretty because not all all groups are captured, but and tend to be, though they are variable in composition, tend to be relatively conserved in size. Not not perfectly, but relatively. Um, most 16S regions are on the order of about 1,000 base pairs. Most ITS regions fall between 500 and 750 base pairs. And the regions in which we were capturing, the V4 hypervariable regions that we were targeting, or ITS2, are a snapshot of that. So even though with Illumina sequencing, we're only getting a 500 base pair region, it's capturing a lot of what we care about capturing for this study. For other things and including some of my future experiments I have planned, I will be doing some genomic analysis. And in that case, genome size will matter a great deal. But um, in in this particular study, it it didn't play as strong of a role.
1: Thank you very much, Dylan. I I appreciate everyone's enthusiasm up here on the stage. I wanna remind people on stage and also guests in the audience that Dylan does have his Twitter Um, contact so you can go and contact him on Twitter he invites you to do so and let's make sure that we give grace to everyone on stage and take turns and um, keep to one question at a time please so next we had Denise go ahead
8: thank you dr. Dillon that was a really fascinating presentation I'm uh, I really like soil science so getting to dig in at this level is really cool Going back to the sampling artifact slash contamination, at what point does DNA degrade under temperatures? And do these fires reach those temperatures understanding that changes over depth?
4: So, um, first off, I appreciate the dig in. I really hope that that was a pun. And, <laughs> and, uh, if not, I'll take the happy accident there. Um, I, I don't have that information directly on hand. Uh, Just off the top of my head, it would be something that I would have to go back and quote for you. Um, It's pretty well characterized that DNA does degrade with higher temperatures. It's the reason why those of us who do molecular science try to keep our samples, our our DNA samples, as cold as possible. Um, You typically try to work with DNA at room temperature or less. And when we're when you're storing it, it's got to be we typically store it somewhere between minus 20 degrees Celsius, and minus 80 degrees Celsius, uh, depending on on its storage method and what you plan to do with it in the future. Um, You can obviously doing some techniques like PCR, you're heating up your samples to around to around 100 degrees celsius and that's how you get the DNA to split so that way you can replicate it in in PCR. But we're not talking about 100 degrees celsius, we're talking about these wildfires that tend to be between five and 800 degrees celsius minimum. Some of these wildfires have been recorded to read Reach upwards of a thousand degrees Celsius. Um, you don't even get certain forms of, of uh, pyrolyzed organic matter, otherwise known as biochar, like charcoal type products. Don't even start to form into some of them don't even form until you. Ex- Most don't form until you exceed three hundred degrees Celsius, and many of many forms don't form until you reach excess of seven hundred degrees Celsius. And so, th- these this is much hotter then most things can survive. Uh, And and, um, because of corroborating studies, which have shown uh, changes in sequence read abundance, so how many sequences you're even able to obtain pre-fire to post-fire, which if there was DNA hanging around after the fire, you'd expect to find a lot less change in sequence read abundance. But we find dramatic changes in sequence read abundance, particularly with severe wildfires. It sometimes doesn't happen as much with prescribed fires because they're not as severe. You still will see change, uh, but not as much. But with something like this, it's, we feel confident in stating that what we're seeing is, is not just leftover DNA. This, is, this has to be from the stuff we're extracting, because it would be really difficult for it to persist otherwise.
8: That was exactly the point of the question, because it does seem unlikely, given these conditions, that these are artifacts or contamination or...
4: This is, yeah. You see relic DNA playing a big uh, problem in things like ocean sediments when people do studies about that, because it's cold. It's it's uh it's moist, and it um there's a lot of salts in the environment which can help to preserve the DNA. So that that kind of stuff can sit around for a while. Um, it doesn't. There's some debate about how fast DNA turns over in the environment in terrestrial organisms, especially because a lot of bacteria like to eat leftover DNA left out in the environment. It's it's a rich source of of nutrients. So um so that's a thing there too uh, is that if it's hanging about it's probably gonna get eaten Um, but now we're talking about hundreds of degrees Celsius way outside of what um, the molecular stability of DNA should permit
8: absolutely yeah I agree Um, and then there I'm going to back channel you about the Illumina units there is um, a consideration to take into into account regarding those units. It's not about the science. Um, mm-hmm. It's about a different factor, but I don't wanna necessarily state that in the open.
4: Fair enough. Well, thank you. I appreciate the back channel then.
1: All right, who's next, please? Let's see, um, Travis, it looks like you're ready to go.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wonderful, wonderful conversation here. Um, Thank you so much for showing up today. Um, I had a question, kind of on on of Dennis's question, and that was uh, the core extraction and the instrumentation used, um, but more pointed at like the gore the core DNA longevity after the extraction was removed and then processed at the lab, um, because. In our territories here that we work in, we have the opportunity to take those core samples before these fires happen. And in a lot of cases, we can't determine when they will. But in a lot of cases, there is a high de- po- probability that they will happen. Um, and then we would have that ability to, to do this. Uh, but my question, I guess, goes back to the core DNA longevity uh, and, and storage long for long-term storage. Uh, is that something that you need to process right away and then you, or you can go back to at a later time? Um, thank you so much.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, so there's a couple of factors to think about when we're talking about that kind of stuff. Um, for our study, uh, those cores are processed almost immediately. We, we ship them in cold temperatures. Uh, we take the cores, immediately put them in the ice chest with ice packs and whatnot to keep them as cold as possible. Um, For DNA, that's pretty good. If you were working with something like RNA, like you were interested in transcriptomics, uh, typically we'll take a a doer full of liquid nitrogen out to the field with us and drop tubes full of soil directly into liquid nitrogen to to flash freeze them um, and and store them like that. Um, So it, it is good practice to do the molecular processing of your samples relatively quickly after you've taken them for, for best result. Uh, that being said, um, if you are capable of, say, going out and taking a core before a fire happens, because you're, if you're interested in this kind of science and you think that somewhere might burn down and you're trying to hedge your bet, for, for example, uh, you could always extract the DNA and then freeze that DNA. The, the frozen DNA can last, we don't even know how long at this point. It's very stable once you freeze it either at minus 20 degrees C or at minus 80 degrees C. So, um, but it has to be at least minus 20 for freezing the DNA in order for it to, to remain very shelf stable. Um, there's a couple other ways that you can make DNA shelf stable, like lyophilization, where you you dry it down into this fine powder, and then you can reconstitute it at a later date. Um, but as far as the soil cores themselves, at room temperature, there's some debate about how well they uh, preserve the microbial community. From my culturing-based work, where I'm growing things, I have found that dried soil just just air dry just present at room temperature um, is not as as diverse as as soil that has been that was collected fresh and and used fresh. Um, We do store soil like small cores of soil at minus 80 degrees C if we can't do the molecular processing of it right away and it has shown uh, both in our work and in, and in other labs work, to be pretty shelf-stable uh, for preserving the microbial community at minus 80 degrees C. So, if, so long as you stick the the soil core or, or some soil into the freezer at, at minus 80 degrees C, you've got a good way of preserving long-term uh, the, the DNA of the microbial community. You can't really culture very much out of minus 80 degrees C, but DNA is a little bit better.
6: Oh, thank you. Um, and the laboratory services that one could access, would that be through any university, major universities, I would imagine?
4: Yeah. I mean, every four year university that I've been a part of has some minus 80 degrees C freezer. Now you might have to be collaborating with a lab because these are expensive freezers. Um, they usually run about $10,000 per and, um, and space is limited, so when people use minus eighty degree C's, they they care about their minus eighty degree um, space. But that's yeah. Universities, when you when when you work with a lab at a university, especially even even Cal States, which are not R one universities, um, they're teaching first universities. Um, my lab had a couple of minus eighty degree C freezers. My current lab at an R one school where where research is really important, uh, we have three freezers in our lab. So. It's and that's just our lab. We, there are many, many, many on this university's campus.
2: Thank you again.
4: Yeah, I. I good question. Thank you for asking it.
1: And thank you, Travis. Um, Dylan Travis has been up keeping people updated in the room chat for which slide you're on. That was that was super thoughtful of you, Travis. Thank you.
4: I, I see. Thank you. I see that. I, I, I was wondering about that as I was going through it. Um, it so it might be, so I, I did start counting slides from the very first one. I have a little slide counter at the top right corner. So mm-hmm. it might be that I was, oh no, you were just helping everyone else. I thought you were, you were saying I, I might've been on the wrong slide. And I was like, oh man, I, I really hope that I wasn't misleading people. But no, thank you so much. Yeah, that, that really does help um, with it. Uh, I appreciate that a great deal.
6: Not a problem, Dylan. I, I was really enjoying. I was really enjoying the work, and um, I would love to hear more. Uh, I would love to know more about the research that you you've uh, you've done and hopefully are doing on on some of this
4: work. Thank you. Um, if, if anyone who's interested in my research, so I do give give talks at conferences. Um, I typically also give talks to like mycological societies. So um, you can usually find me at some of those. Sort of uh, presentations. Also, I'm try to be active on Twitter. Anytime a new paper comes out, I'll I'll post it onto Twitter so everyone can can see it. Um, I only really use my Twitter professionally, so I'll, I'll post lab updates and research updates there. Sometimes I'll share just papers that I personally found interesting there as well. So,
1: I think uh, Jamie and and thank you, Dylan, for for um, yeah sharing that you did that you are. There on Twitter again, and Jamie, were you um th- were you ready? Yep. Did you have a question? All right, I
3: have a, I have a question. Um, Dylan, thank you so much for that talk. That was actually really interesting. I was learning so much more about these things than I ever um, knew. That's amazing. Um, thank my you. questions are a, a little bit more general because uh, a couple of things you mentioned were kind of interesting. Um. When you mentioned these megafires, how hot do megafires then get compared to like the ones we can manufacture ourselves? And what makes a mega fire go mega that we can't replicate?
4: Right. So again, I, I don't have specific temperature data with me. Uh, I, I'd have to get back to you on that. But prescribed fires typically have, uh, like the ones that we replicate tend to have pretty low fuel loads, and they burn through an area pretty quickly, um, which is is part of the the difference in the temperatures that they are consuming. A lot of fine fuels burn at a lower temperature, but they happen, and they happen relatively rapidly. You get high temperature burns from from older, woodier materials being present on on the ground. Um, And so, what leads these fires to go from something that we can replicate into something that's like a wildfire into something that's like a mega fire is when these fuel loads have been accumulating and accumulating over time uh, on the forest floor and then they dry out due to extended drought periods Oftentimes, these mega fires will take place, um, bordering, but but in regions that are relatively untraveled, so so natural parks, um, wildland landscapes like that, Uh, and then it can become difficult to combat the blazes in those kind of locations as well, Um, and so where it becomes different from something we can replicate in a prescribed burn. So typically with prescribed burns, the fire department is okay with you burning away. Well, they set the fire and you have to do it in very specific regions because they're trying to prevent large scale wildfires from occurring. But uh, it's, the, the goal is to clear the forest floor of, of dead matter. But in the case of something like this mega fire, you're not just clearing the forest floor you're also getting near one hundred if not a hundred percent near one hundred percent mortality of the for the trees within the forest as well so you're not just having the whatever the duff on the ground that contributes to the fire or the downed woody material you also get the forest itself is now fuel for the blaze um and that's where that's where those temperatures that's where those conditions just wildly escalate past what can be replicated in a in a in a more controlled environment that being said there is a little bit of research currently being done uh, to try and replicate in small scale uh, the intensity of a wildfire it's something that our lab is going to try doing some work with uh, dr. Tom Bruns at University of California Berkeley did some research uh, trying to develop a system he calls the pyrocosm, which is a, a small, like a, a five gallon steel bucket where you can change the fuel load on top to relative to a five gallon buckets worth of soil, change the intensity of a fire. It, it bears out some more study, but it's it's something that's uh, an interesting system that we might be employing in the future here to try and get some more data without having our our natural our our, uh our parks burned down our our wild lands burned down that's incredibly interesting so it's like all
3: this stuff in there all adds to the fire heats it up and that just kind of just shifts up until it becomes this mega fire that and and i didn't even realize we didn't there's some things about that we didn't know so that's even exciting to find out what we don't know (laughs) as much (laughs) as what we do know um and one last question for you um you mentioned this um fire loving fungi, right? Um, and you were talking about that, um, does is that fungi, is it like, does it get burned up? Well, I, I'm very difficult to understand something being attracted to fire without it being you know suicidal, like, you know, how they call like moths to flames and things like that.
4: Right, um,
3: right. Is it like that or is it surviving or is it? Uh, what? I'm trying to get my head around why something would be attracted to fire.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's a really good point And it's, I'll, I'll be 100% transparent with you. It's something that we don't totally know yet. It's something that I'm hoping to add some data to this conversation over, over the next year or so. Um, but it's, this is something that is currently in, 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 in research. This is something we don't, that's where I was talking about one of the major gaps in our understanding is that things are observational and we don't have this kind of ecological data of not only what are they doing in the environment but how do they stay in in there. We have some guesses, we have some hypotheses that we're making based off of lifestyles and some of the structures some of these fungi or bacteria can produce. Uh, Things like pyronema, both domesticum and omphaloides, uh, uh, they produce these really dense cellular structures called um, sclerotia, which can protect some cells on the interior that can be used, or spores, that can be used for germination, and can be incredibly hard to destroy, uh, and very well might be surviving the wildfire coming through. On top of the fact that the soil itself is an insulating thing. Now, we're in the talking about the top ten centimeters of soil, where most microbial life takes place, most microbial function takes place is in the top ten centimeters. But it doesn't mean that some microbes don't exist deeper down. So there are some hypotheses that microbes might be surviving the fire by being really, really low, really deep in the soil relative to what is typically biologically active, and then the heat that is coming through from the fire helping to signal for germination for growing upwards into the more biologically active zones. There's also this uh, really neat um, research being done by Radaba et al. uh, That is, uh, it's called the body snatchers hypothesis, if you look this up, um, saying that some of these fungi might exist in the roots or in the bark or the leaves of some of the plants that are in the forest. And then when the wildfire happens, they're now deposited into the soil and capable of taking up space and, and utilizing that environment.
7: So, so I'd kind of like to, to comment. Oh, Jamie, go ahead. Sorry.
3: Uh, no, no, sorry. I'm just going to say that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for your time.
7: Of course. Yeah, no, thank you. Those are excellent questions. So so it's it's obviously not the same uh, ecosystem, but I did get to uh, go through the burn area in Joshua Tree, and mm. um, th- there were some remarkable things that I noticed in terms of how uh, some of the Joshua trees would char, uh, but but tissue underneath wasn't. Uh, wasn't uh, really burned, um, and so if you know if there are endosymbionts in there, that would you know really line up well with with your previous comment of of uh, um, ways that things could survive. Um, I there's back and forth in this, and unfortunately Grepley uh, um, who actually was was there with me, uh, isn't with us right now, but. Um, uh, as as we were going through there. Okay, well, let's just step back. Um, Joshua trees depend on a particular there. There are two types of Joshua trees. One of them uh, depends on a particular type of moth uh, to make it through its life cycle, which, which, uh, uh, might not be around anymore. So this, this may be part of the tragedy of, uh, uh, Joshua tree. Um, although again, back and forth on that question, but one thing that we did notice that was just like, so amazing about, uh, about what was happening there was that, uh, there's new growth coming from the roots of, uh, burned and dead, uh, Joshua trees. Um, but I was wondering along a similar line whether you were aware of uh, if anybody has been studying the microbiome there in Joshua Tree,
4: soil microbiome. So um, funny that you should bring that up. So while, I, so I've actually done a little bit of research in a Joshua Tree forest, not in Joshua Tree National Park. I'm familiar with the fire, you're, what you're talking about. Um, one of the things is about desert fires is that they tend to be pretty low severity, because there's not a lot of fuel to burn to begin with, and the prevalent, the prevailing winds that exist in the desert tend to move fires along at a really rapid pace. This does mean that fires can grow rapidly uh, in, in desert environments, but they tend to burn themselves out pretty quickly as well. That being said, the dome fire of 2020, which took place in Sima, California, burned down one of the uh, Mojave's few pristine Joshua tree forests. Um, and my lab is involved in a sampling effort in which we're studying the microbiomes of the roots of those Joshua trees and the soil in the, both the burn scar and in the unburned areas. And I myself have gone out a couple of times for soil collection, but also to collect some fungi that were cropping up in the bark of completely like 100% mortality killed burned Joshua trees. So very interesting stuff is currently happening there in 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 Joshua tree forest systems. Um, not a lot of people are doing it, but there's a couple of us and one of us is, is in my lab uh, that's really being headed up by my my colleague, um, Arik Juhaijin, uh, who is a uh, a second year, starting his third year of his PhD in our in our lab. So,
7: so anybody who's interested, uh, there are pictures on my Instagram. Uh, it's it's not linked, but it's listed at the bottom of my profile of of the new growth coming from the roots of the burnt uh, Joshua trees. And uh, qualification as it did seem to be uh, in the Joshua trees, uh, close to a stream bed.
4: Mm. Mm. Okay. We've just started to notice in the edges of the burn zone of the dome fire that some, uh, Joshua tree, like baby seedlings are starting to grow. Um, unfortunately the fire was so intense that even two years later now, uh we we have not seen any new joshua trees growing in the heart of those burn scars um the park service that manages uh the Nash, the mojave national preserve which is where sima california is and the dome fire took place is looking at transplanting some baby joshua trees from a nursery into the soil there to try and expedite the growth and that's that's something that we're studying along with them to to see about that but there's interesting work being done so, sure. so
7: were, were they seedlings that were independent of, of anything, uh, any, you know, dead trees?
4: Yes, these were seedlings grown from seed in a pot.
7: Oh, no, no, no. But I, I mean, before you said that some seedlings were observed.
4: Oh, oh, oh 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 yes, yes, yes. Those are along the edges of the burn. So there are some unburned Joshua trees in the area. Got it. And then there are, are burned trees bordering along with that. So...
7: Yeah, so I, I'm gonna um, send send your links to, to uh, my friend Leslie Purge. She uh, used to be a geologist um, and uh, is did did uh, lots of field work in, in the desert. And um, uh, I think that you, she she and you will will uh, have some interesting conversations if she gets in touch with you.
4: Well, very cool. Thank you.
1: Dylan, you're going to have so much reading to do after we're done with <laughs> you. <laughs> this is great. Uh, I see Chris, uh, Christopher, flashing your mic. Christopher, the mic is yours. Welcome to the stage. Christopher, um, was I mic'd? I, I, um, I tried to say that I saw Christopher flashing his mic and that now the mic you... is yours.
8: Oh, thank you very much. I did have a quick question, and this is my inner chef coming out. Um, do you see an increase in the edible species of fungi after these mega fires
4: there's i always get at least one question about this and it's usually people who are hunting for morels after the fire um guilty in (laughs) uh in in some it's really typical in in pine ecosystems to find morels after the fire some there are, are two species of morel um they that are known to associate positively with fire that would be uh, morchella eximia and morchella snideri um and uh while i'm examining those things in culture in the lab i we i did not see morchella as either an an, an indicative species of the burned condition or enriching in my burned plots or or increasing in 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 the redwood tan oak forest study i haven't seen anything indicating that Morcello or indeed really any of the edible species of fungi boomed after the fire in this instance it, but again it, there are different scales of fire there are there are fires and then there are mega fires. and with these really destructive and really intense fires you may not be seeing some of the, the things you would typically go looking for after a wildfire.
8: So does it, in essence, is it sterilizing the cultures or
4: is it just killing them off entirely? It, it, it is possible that it, it does get hot enough to be, not exactly, I, I, sterilizing the soil isn't what's happening because there are living things still there after the fire takes place uh but it might be too intense for the morcella to be um to be existing. Uh a lot of edible species of fungi are are degraders, or they're what we call as uh, saprobes. Um and while we get to saprobic fungi growing after after the fire, they they tend to be a little bit more specialized um in terms of what they eat. And and again, this is one of those areas where we're bordering on what isn't known about fire and fungi. And it's something that I hope to be working on because it is my working hypothesis that one of the major drivers of which fungi you're seeing after these wildfire events like this are that they're probably a little bit more specialized towards breaking down some of the unique carbon structures found in charcoal and biochar and charred materials. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank thank you for the question.
1: This is great. I wish we had uh, snacks we could share now after that question. Um, Well, maybe that's coming in the app update. So, okay, who's next? We haven't heard from Scott yet. Thank you for flashing your mic, Scott. The mic is yours.
5: Awesome, thanks very much for having me up and uh, thanks very much for the presentation, it was great. Um, Relative to the previous conversation, um, and, a, and a couple earlier as well um I, I, as far as i understand it you know the cultivation of, of bacteria in petri dishes really only allows about one percent to actually thrive and survive in in that environment compared to you know the the vastness of the cultures that exist in soils living in symbiotic relationship with you know, thousands of others um the there there's a technology I, I remember reading about a while ago called um I-cell. i cell i posted a link in the chat um, on it and um and it was specifically designed to to be able to isolate many multiple different types of uh, of organisms and then continue to culture them um Sort of more in situ culturing, and it was really sort of born out of this idea of trying to understand sort of the dark matter and the un- unknown and un categorized organisms that we don't really have. Um, and I was curious if a you've heard of this, b if you've tried that within some of your experiments. Um, you know, there's the the other article I posted, which is where I first learned about it um, from 2016. You know, you can see. So- it, it details quite lengthily um, details sort of its you know, creation and, and some of the um, the researchers that are part of it i think you know, it, the article focuses around um i think his name is dr slava epstein he's at mm-hmm. i think he's at northeastern University now he's a soil scientist and um, anyway i was curious on your on your thoughts around that and just you know the Vast other microbes that we don't know, and, and maybe would surprise us if if the culturing was easier I don't know.
4: um that's that's an excellent point. so uh, there are, are a couple of so first off i i have I, I am f- somewhat familiar with this technology a little bit um tangentially I have not employed it myself. Some of these uh, are kind of expensive lab techniques to really engage in. Um, I do know of a lab that is working on, not with wildfires specifically, but uh, Dr. Jeremy Dodsworth at Cal State University, San Bernardino, has developed a system that he calls um, molecular tweezers. Uh, <laughs> it's this uh, flow cell sorting machine that's capable of moving a single bacterial cell, isolating it and putting it into a flask. And he does this for trying to improve the culturability of um, geothermal hot spring microbes, uh, which is what he studies, particularly. And uh, and it's some interesting work. I will say um, I, I'm a big proponent of uh, Dr. Paul Carini's line of thought when it comes to the culturability of microbes. And, and the first of that is um, uh, Dr. Paul Carini, if you're interested in the culturing of microbes, is, is definitely someone I would, in, in I'll, I'll write his name in the, I can write things in the chat, can't I? Dr. Paul Carini um, is something, is someone that I would suggest looking into. Uh, he works on trying to culture the quote unquote, unculturable, Uh, microorganisms Um, but also talks about the fact that that idea that there's 99% of microbes can't be cultured is something that's often quoted and and even in academic circles tends to be quoted again and again and again but it turns out it's a little bit of an outdated concept Uh, a lot of those numbers take place from some studies done in like the 70s and 80s and things like that uh but in the last 20 maybe maybe 25 years or so we've really improved laboratory technique for the culturing of a wide variety of microorganisms um dr paul carini uh, argues in one of his papers that that 99 is actually it's more like we have in culture currently probably 20% of microbes that can be cultured at the moment. Uh, and and even then, it's, it's about your question. If you care about one very specific species of, of a bacterium, for example, um, you might not be able to get that. But where sort of like that those figures my figures five and six in the paper where i'm exploring if closely related organisms behave or respond positively in a similar manner uh, to each other to fire is is relevant here because while i might not be able to get one specific species i might be able to get a sister species of that species in culture and then that would be ecologically relevant for this kind of research. And, and Dr. Paul Carini says, that, uh, has, says in one of his papers, he argues that while we might only have you know between 18 and 20% of, some things, uh, of the things known that we can culture cultured, uh, it's more like we probably have 40 or 50% of closely of representation amongst microbial groups in some form of culture. Because you can get something closely related, so so while yes, there's the unculturable things, um, the things we can culture are still pretty ecologically relevant, and that and 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 this is both true for bacteria and fungi, and it's where my current research is because I I've spent the last couple of years building a culture collection of several hundred uh, species of both bacteria and fungi, cultured from burned soils. Um, and while I haven't gotten everything that I'd love to get, I have gotten a number of the ones that are really important in the literature. So I've mentioned a couple of times Pyronema. Omphalo- I have both Pyrenema omphaloides and Pyrenema domesticum cultured. I have really important species of penicillium cultured. I have that tricarina that i mentioned some geopixis some paisa i have a lot of things that are these pyrophilis studied microbes i have them in culture to work with they were culturable and i was able to get them or get them from someone else who was building a culture collection for their own reasons but happened to have the same species that i'm looking for mm-hmm. um and the same thing goes true for for bacteria a lot of Ecologically relevant to the discussion of fire adaptation, bacteria like *Novasibirium* or *Pseudonocardia*. Uh, I have those things in culture. I was able to get those things to culture, so I have—I have a playground of things that I'll get. I, I'm working with moving forward for some of these ecological grounded studies.
5: Nice. That, that, that's cool. I, I mean, I definitely the the. I, th- I think I said, um, "I cell," but it's it, it's "I chip."
4: Um, yeah.
2: It,
5: and uh, and and so i think it's it's pretty low cost it's like a plastic um with two little like pieces of plastic membrane between it so it's, it 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 seems like it's designed for pretty low cost solutions it's definitely worthwhile checking out and considering but just on the um species question while i still have the floor if i can ask a second one um the I, i'm interested in hydrogenotroph organisms and these are okay. That null gas class of bacteria. They they consume syn gas, so that that exists in high heat temperatures or is graded from the burning of biomass. Um, you know, around between you know the five hundred eight hundred degrees Celsius area is when a lot of hydrogen and um, carbon monoxide is released from the materials, um, the, the biomass as it's being burned, and we do see these these organisms like. Necator, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that properly, but um, as as a, an example organism. And I was wondering if that those bacteria types that you've come across or researched, I know they're prevalent in, yeah, in our guts currently and in and, and desert soils and, and just had no sense of uh, if they would be prevalent after or burns, but would think that they would... I don't know about the heat survivability, but certainly the, their food is, is highly prevalent in those areas or would, would have been abundant during the burning timeframe.
4: Right. And, and so um, I try to get around some of the microbes that might not be able to um, survive the heat, but instead might prefer those food sources. By sometimes what I'll do... For this study, this was immediately post-fire. But for some culturing work, oftentimes I'll collect samples that are like six months post-fire to try and give some things a chance to disperse in that are ecologically relevant and make use of the available unique nutrients there in the environment. Um, and so that's, you do find that the community does start to shift sometimes uh, towards different metabolic strat- strategies a little bit further away from the in- initial post-burn. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 they thrive on biochar, it's it's very possible that they are existing in a in a burned environment. The conversation surrounding fire adapted bacteria is in its infancy. um As I had mentioned in my, my presentation, there's only a, a couple a handful of studies that have even considered whether a bacteria should be considered or uh, some bacteria might be considered fire adapted uh there are a few studies within the last 10 years that have taken bacteria into account when when sequencing the environment after a fire but in terms of microorganisms fungi have received the lion's share of the research mostly because even in the pre-sequencing age you could just walk around a forest and look for things that fruit um but Bacteria, that's, that's not as possible to do with. Um, I haven't worked with those kind of bacteria. So a lot of bacteria that are really pre- prevalent in guts or that have really interesting, like, gas requirements tend to also be anaerobic. And I'm doing pretty much aerobic culturing at this point. I have ideas and some plans and some hopes to one day maybe incorporate some anaerobic culturing. But it requires a level of setup that i just don't currently work with in my lab.
5: These um, actually go between both so they can they can exist anaerobically or aerobically.
4: Oh, very cool. So if they're if they're facultatively aerobic, then and and not obligate anaerobes, uh i it's possible i might have come across them in my culturing. I I will be honest, it's not a group that i i thought very much about. Um up to this point but it would be interesting i can look back through my culture collection and see if any of the things are described uh hydra- how did you pronounce it hydranotrophs uh hydrogenotrophs, Hy-
5: Hy- Hy- hy-drogenotrophs. yeah
4: hydrogenotrophs yeah. Cons- consuming hydrogen yeah exactly, so yeah. um I-, I know we have some that involve around like i have uh bacillus methylobacterium which is a which works with methane obviously from its well i can't say obviously um but but from its name it, it uh, you can infer that it works with it, its met metabolic diet includes uh, a methane transfer that takes place but um uh or sorry not bacillus methylobacterium is bethelobacterium grigans that i have um have another bacillus that has something similar in the name anyhow uh so some interesting things revolving gas exchange analysis and i'm planning on doing a little bit of gas flux analysis stuff in my current work, but not so much with with um hydrogen or or methane i'm currently looking more at like c o two for like respiration rates and uh and n two o prediction for for things like nitrogen cycling in the environment
5: very cool yeah i'm i i i think that these are interesting organisms to be able to um, if 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 they can thrive in biochar environments, I, I think that's very interesting. They you know if if they are in uh, environments where there is hydrogen and oxygen prevalent, they can um well I I think that what's happening is that they're binding hydrogen oxygen molecules together and actually producing water as a mm. as a waste product. And so they and and I I have a bigger hypothesis that. They were existing pre-oxygenation event, and were a, a, a transitionary bacteria that maybe helped through that transition or helped that transition continue.
4: Um, as that's a, really interesting. That's my hypothesis. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, I'll be honest; it's it's not something I've looked into a whole lot of. I'm I'm familiar with classes I, I've taken and, and and things like that about the oxygenation event you know when you, when you start to see bands of, of red iron forming in, in earth's crust and whatnot that's that's real that's a really interesting concept It would be interesting to see how they affect how how well they would persist in a burned environment considering that a lot of burned soils tend to be pretty hydrophobic um, a lot of the Waxes and oils and phenolic compounds produced in the combustion of, of forests and, and those wooded materials to pro- produce this hydrophobic layer, which it doesn't exist forever, but while it's there, can 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 be ecologically relevant. It's part of the reason. I mean, part of the reason is the fact that the plants are dead, and so there's not as much root material to bind things up. But why you get sometimes flash floods after wildfires and such.
5: Very cool, awesome. Well, well, thanks very much for uh, all the time. I should probably yield back to other
4: people, but <laughs> yeah, this is great. Thank you. That was that was really interesting discussion, and it, you're making me think about some things I haven't really considered. With this, I'll I'll, I'll have to comb through my my uh, culture collection and see if I've got anything that's described hydren hydrogenotroph. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you, Scott, for bringing that here to the stage that's amazing um dylan we are noticing that we've had you here for two hours and seven minutes and even longer (laughs) and and we really appreciate you spending your time and and energy and mind and research with us um however we should wrap up um serena says she has no questions katarina you may so i'm gonna throw it to you and um and then yeah we should we should wrap up so that um with some luck you will want to come back and spend more time with us so katarina
0: thank thank you so much uh dylan and everyone asks so many amazing questions so i really appreciate um yeah the question i have for the future um do you think there's a way to find features in these um microbes that kind of survive these mega fires and maybe um use that in, you know, transfer the, those um, characteristics to um, other micro, you know, to other parts of the microbiome basically, um, to, dive, to basically um, be able to diversify uh, the soil even after mega fire. So would that be an option maybe in the future to engineer basically uh high risk areas for uh, for megafires to basically have a um, a high diverse um survival rate
4: so that's a really interesting concept so the the first part of your question is can we identify some characteristics of how these microbes might be surviving the fires that's my current research that is currently what i'm trying to do is profile some of these post-fire microbes, some of these potentially pyrophilous microbes, to understand what strategies they're employing for either surviving the fire or at least thriving in a post-fire environment. Um, As far as as engineering uh, future microbes for it, so there's, there are technical hurdles to overcome and that sort of a thing. Uh, bacteria, especially, but all microbes um, tend to be pretty conservative with what genes and life strategies they employ. Um, bacterial genomes are, are fairly small considering you know other living organisms. And so they're very reductionist. They only keep the things that really serve them well for the most part. And so you end up having this situation where if you engineer a microbe uh, through some molecular technique to now have a new function, you have to make that function either energetically favorable for the microbe, or you have to make it where the microbe needs it for some other survival characteristic. So it might be tough to say prime an ecosystem to wildfire or, or, or something like that um, to help diversify a post-fire landscape through that because if there's not the pressure before the fire takes place, they tend to either die or they remove those portions from their genome. Um, I would say another A couple other of strategies that there are to explore uh, that my lab also engages in some of this research. And and some of it is something that I'm I'm excited or interested about trying. Once I've done a little bit more research myself is looking at, can we apply some of these microbes that are adapted to the post fire environment in mass to help Expedite the regeneration of the environment. So, say I managed to profile a bacteria that is just excellent at eating charcoal and charred remains. If we were to apply that bacteria to the environment, does it help to speed up the breakdown of that charcoal that exists in the environment such that other organisms can then uh, settle in and, and propagate and thrive the way that they were before the fire took place? um that's that's an avenue that is really far down the road still because a lot of these things are still in their infancy but it is a thing that i am interested in exploring down the road how you can apply a culture of some microbe that performs a function that you want performed in the environment and seeing if it helps with some sort of ecosystem function another way of diversifying the landscape the microbial landscape after a fire has taken place is through an ecological restoration method known as whole soil inoculation so in that instance you take soil from an unburned zone and apply it to areas in the environment hoping to restart or jump start the inoculation of what the forest looked like before It has its ups and downs it's a thing that we're trying in one of our burn systems that we're looking at it's a it's a grassland system so it's something that we're we're exploring and experimenting with at the moment um and it has some promising data coming out of that but there are some things to consider like the severity of the fire uh as as i've mentioned a number of times grassland fires tend to be less severe than old growth forest fires and so if the environment can't support those organisms, those more diverse organisms, they'll still fail after inoculation. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this regard. I think there are some pathways forward in the future to using microbes to help us perform ecological function, uh, not just in wildfire, but in a variety of circumstances. That's that's something I'm very interested in. Uh, but I think we're still a ways off from that. I, I'm still working on the profiling, the, the microbial processes that they're doing, so that way we can try and understand how they're surviving fire or how they're thriving post-fire at the moment. We're still at that stage. So we've, we've, got, our, we've got our work cut out for us before we get to the point of strategically using microbes to, to recover the environment or to... Uh, perform an ecological function for us like that.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate uh, your talk and that you gave us so much time <clears throat> to answer all these questions. did um, yeah, an amazing... Job, and um, we are very thankful for you sharing all your knowledge uh, here with us. We learned a lot. I know in the chat there are many more questions, but hopefully, you'll come back uh, sometime and we will get to more questions at some point with maybe updates from your work. That would be amazing. And, I would love uh,
4: to come back. Thank you.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. We are so glad to hear that because people are really excited. And have more questions, but I want to also be respectful of everyone's time. And, um, yeah, thank you again and um, enjoy the rest of your day. And, and you know, we wish you all the funding and <laughs> and that everything works out uh, because it's really important work. And we really appreciate that you're doing this. And thank
4: you very much. I, I really appreciate that. This has been a pleasure. I, I've really enjoyed my, my time here with you all, and I look forward to, to one day coming back and, and being able to share with you some more exciting wildfire fungi and bacterial science.
3: May I also thank you very much for an amazing talk, and also all the best to you when completing your PhD and everything, and we very much look forward to seeing you back as Dr.
4: Dillon.
1: Yes, that's a good point, Jamie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
4: So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This is this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
7: And uh, just really thank quick you, note, too. I did uh, uh, put the link to those pictures uh, in the room chat if you're interested. And thanks for the talk. It was really interesting.
4: Fantastic. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Eli. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Eli. Those are great pictures. Um. Yeah. So. Have a good night, evening, morning, wherever you are around the world. (laughs) And um, yeah, come back if you like um, discussions like this, follow Science Society. And we will have more rooms like this. Um, Not this room, but (laughs) uh, tomorrow we'll have a room about generating more different colors with gold uh, using actually DNA. So, it's, it will be a really cool talk at 1 p.m. EST. And thank you, Dylan, again. Thank you, everyone, for asking all these questions. It was a really great and interesting discussion. I learned a lot. So, uh, thank you. And we'll close the room in three, two, Good night, one.
2: Everyone. Thank you all. Bye. <laughs>